From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Melissa Block. Money, a hostage, suicide, could be elements of a thriller or mystery novel, but in this case, the tale is one of scientific discovery, how post-traumatic stress disorder was first recognized by doctors and health officials. According to the National Center for PTSD, nearly 8% of adult Americans are now diagnosed with the disorder, a concept that didn't even exist a quarter century ago. Reporter Elise Spiegel explains how a handful of determined men and women forced the U.S. government to acknowledge this mental disorder. In 1991, after a day of intense battle in Kuwait, Gulf veteran Kevin Knight stepped out of his Humvee into the desert sand. And I took several steps, and I happened to look down at the ground. And there on the ground was a small baby tennis shoe with a foot in it. At the time, Knight didn't think much of it. He was a soldier. He'd seen death before. But when Knight got back to the States, that one image, the image of a severed foot in a miniature tennis shoe, kept coming back to him. He'd be playing cards, fixing his car, sitting at work. Then all of a sudden, I'd just kind of start daydreaming, and and I'd start thinking about that that incident. And... uh, I thought about that continually, uh, and, and it's a reoccurring dream every night. Kevin thought about the shoe so constantly, he couldn't concentrate. He lost his job. Then he went to a psychiatrist at the Veterans Affairs Hospital who told him he had post-traumatic stress disorder. He went into therapy, and the image began to fade. A modest success story. But had this happened during the Vietnam War, Knight probably wouldn't have been treated at all. You see, post-traumatic stress disorder didn't exist. When Jack Smith returned from Vietnam in 1969, there was no tidy label for the feelings that were troubling him. Somebody would express an opinion that I realized was ill-formed, and I I would be so angry physically, I used to punch out windows with my fist because I didn't want to touch anyone. But physically, I had to act out that anger. Smith didn't talk about Vietnam for years, didn't want to think about it. Then in the fall of 1970, he was invited to an informal meeting in New York City. A small group of vets thought they'd get together, talk about their feelings. The men had never heard of war neurosis or encountered the idea that intense stress might have lasting effects. All they knew was that they were paralyzed by anger, that they woke up screaming. We're talking a mile a minute and jumping on each other's stories and we suddenly realized we all had similar kinds of experiences and were having the same kinds of problems. And we said, what is going on? After six hours of talk, the vets decided to meet again. They also decided to invite two well-known psychiatrists to participate, Robert J. Lifton and High Shatton. Of course, when Lifton and Shatton first agreed to attend the meetings, they didn't anticipate defining a whole new diagnosis. They were simply there to listen. Shatton is deceased now, but here's Robert Lifton. They started out being very intense renditions of what these men had been through. Jack Smith. All the anger, anguish, pain. They had to say in some way to this group what they had experienced. And there were these shrinks in the room. Bob Lifton and High Shatton were sitting in the room, and their eyes are wide as saucers. And we were stunned by what we heard. We heard about things we had never known of, certainly never experienced. 
While the idea of shell shock and battle fatigue had been discussed in psychiatry for years, few psychiatrists had direct experience with people suffering from war trauma. In fact, in the late 60s, the diagnostic category of war neurosis had been removed from the American Psychiatric Association's official listing of mental diseases, a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There was no official label, and without an official label, there was no official treatment. To the psychiatric community, psychological damage from war didn't exist. The vets probably should have been bothered by this, but they weren't. They didn't understand the power of labels. We could care less. I mean, at that point, we could care less about labels. It was probably two years before we even put a label on it. And we began calling it post-Vietnam syndrome. I mean, amongst ourselves, that's what we called it. Finding this name turned out to be crucial. In 1972, Hai Shatton, one of the psychiatrists in the group, published a piece in the New York Times about post-Vietnam syndrome, the first public articulation of the problem. This article attracted a storm of attention, including attention from the Veterans Administration, the agency responsible for veteran health care, which was opposed to any official recognition of a diagnosis. Jack Smith. Part of the motivation at the VA was the argument that if we recognize this, we got hundreds of thousands of Vietnam veterans. These guys are going to be applying for compensation. Do you know what's going to cost the government? Art Blank is a psychiatrist who worked at a VA hospital during the early 70s. I actually heard psychiatrists and others say that this was going to bankrupt the United States Treasury. But it wasn't just about the money. The VA also objected on scientific grounds. Mental health at the time was really dominated by psychoanalysis, which believed that childhood trauma alone caused emotional problems in adult life. According to this logic, if a soldier emerged from war with psychological disabilities, it was because he was a bad apple and poor parenting was to blame. As a result, many of the veterans who checked themselves into VA hospitals were misdiagnosed as schizophrenics or psychotics. Again, Art Blank. We all have many horror stories, by the way, clinical horror stories from the 1970s about Vietnam veterans. A great many things happened that should never have happened. People were misdiagnosed, treated with shock treatment. There were some patients who killed themselves. One of the vets who was misdiagnosed was a guy Jack Smith knew named Paul Kershaw. He had been at the VA hospital and he had had shock treatment. They had given him major tranquilizers in terms of meds. It hadn't done anything for him, but he began talking with some of the guys who were in the rap groups, and we began, you know, informally, we'd see him at the office, he'd come around and we'd talk with him and realize that he was one of us. And then, right before Christmas, three or four weeks after he'd gotten discharged from the hospital, had come to see us, he drove his car head-on into a pig iron truck and killed himself. It was around this time that Jack Smith became frustrated. A number of people had been collecting data on Vietnam vets in order to build their case to the VA that post-Vietnam syndrome actually existed. So when the head of the VA, Richard Radebush, was quoted as saying that there was nothing unique about Vietnam-era vets, Smith decided that it was time to take action. To Smith and his friends, there was only one way to ensure that the vets would get the undivided attention of the VA leader they decided to take him hostage. We walked in the office and nailed the door shut. We had sea rations, we had porta-potties, we had briefing papers, and we said, we're having a teach-in. We said, we're not going to hurt you, but we heard what you said, and you are going to get an education. They showered Radebush with pages of data. 
So after about three hours, they took battering rams and they burst through the doors and arrested us, took us off to jail. And I was convicted and sentenced to a year in jail for destruction of government property. Routabush came and testified that we were honorable people, that, that we were adamant about veterans. Smith was let out of jail after a month and returned to New York City, where High Shatton had come up with a plan. Shatton had decided that they needed to get the concept of post-Vietnam syndrome included in the Bible of the psychiatric profession, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. This plan, according to Oklahoma University professor Wilbur Scott, was a brilliant political move. If you get it in the manual in one fell swoop, that's the end of the discussion, (laughs) you know. you see what I mean? You don't have to do it case by case after that. You don't have to do it institution by institution, block by block. It's in the manual. The director and all-around gatekeeper of the manual was a man named Robert Spitzer. So Shatton got John Talbot, a well-respected psychiatrist and friend of Spitzer's, to set up a meeting. In the spring of 1974, Spitzer sat down to a New York lunch with Shatton and Smith. We go in to see Bob, and Bob starts off saying, if we recognize this... Do you know what's going to cost the government? And Hi started talking. I said, Hi, just hang on a second. I said, Bob, you don't even want to have this discussion with Lifton Shatton and me on the op-ed page of the New York Times. If the American Psychiatric Association came out and said schizophrenia doesn't exist because it's going to cost too much money, Talbot would string you up from a lamppost. It's the same thing with this. I know that's the VA's argument. That has nothing to do with DSM-3. You are not responsible for the federal budget. Wilbur Scott. Spitzer's response to that meeting was, uh, well, we need data. We need the evidence. We'll decide on the basis of data and evidence. To weigh the evidence, Spitzer appointed an actual DSM-PTSD committee. In making their decision, the group considered not only the research provided by the vets, but also trauma studies in a variety of areas, rape, the Holocaust, natural disasters, which is how post-Vietnam syndrome got a new name, Jack Smith. Forget post-Vietnam syndrome. Suddenly, because of these, we're dealing with post-traumatic syndrome. It was official. When the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual was finally published in 1980, it included post-traumatic stress disorder, a new disease that applied not only to vets, but to all survivors of major trauma, including events like natural disasters and terrorist incidents. The definition included many of the symptoms that Smith and company saw in their group, nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, anger, a definition the Veterans Administration simply could not ignore. You had a tablet. It was like the Ten Commandments. It was writ. It's here. Bob Spitzer says this exists. After the DSM's publication, VA opposition quickly died away. Legislation was passed to set up a network of vet centers, in part dedicated to providing PTSD services to Vietnam vets. But there were still pockets of resistance, and Jack Smith discovered one when he tried to become a psychologist. He went to graduate school to get his Ph.D., but the department chair refused to accept his dissertation proposal for a PTSD study. He told Jack the disorder didn't exist. You have managed to hoodwink the American Psychiatric Association, but we're scientists in psychology and there is no data to support it, and you are not about to create any. So you'll either run rats, like every other psychologist, or go on your way. 
Today, Smith works in construction. Meanwhile, the career of post-traumatic stress disorder as a psychiatric concept has thrived. Although the concept is only 23 years old, it's one of the most widely used entries in the DSM. In fact, many people see the disorder as too popular. Any forensic psychiatrist will tell you that it's one of the most commonly fake diagnoses in the court system. But despite these criticisms of overuse, people like Kevin Knight, the Gulf War veteran, have clearly benefited from a standardized definition. Knight's adapted to the disease, but continues to be haunted by the image he saw that day in 1991, a child's foot lying alone in the desert sand. I've been told that that, that image will never leave me. But the, um, through the uh, therapy that I'm, I've gone to, I don't think about it as much as I used to. For NPR News, this is Elise Spiegel in Washington.